0: Well, we have given up a lot of shows uh, to the question of affordability, including last week this weekly we can try and reduce it to a couple of minutes, uh, but it 's been a, another week where this has been a, an important point, the idea of uh, affordability checks coming in as part of the uh, gambling commission 's recommendations, which will then be fed ultimately into the into the gambling review
1: that's right, so things actually have happened again this mm. week in the sense that we 've had more numbers banded about in terms of what this will cost the horse racing industry if affordability checks of perhaps £100 minimum are brought in by the Gambling Commission. Martin Crudder spoke of £100 million hit to horse racing. Uh, Nevin Truesdale, the Jockey Club chief executive, argued that the financial blow could be worse than the sport has um, received due to, to COVID. So serious numbers being raised there. Uh, Colin Hoard, the head of the Horse Race Betters Forum, um, has gone before um, Parliament to talk about um, the the impact on the sports um, there as well what, what, what's interesting at the moment is that there are two issues going on at the same time, you've got a government gambling review and you've got a gambling commission looking at affordability checks um, for me I, I would go along with the arguments that so many others have made in that there are clearly huge problems with, with, with problem gambling and in that sense what the gambling commission is doing comes from a good place however Um, you can critique the methods that they're using or aspiring to use to tackle the problem. And for me, it is highly questionable whether the problem of gambling on horse racing is anywhere near as big as the problem on gambling on slots and casinos. And there are other things that that could be done with regards to this. Um, I've mentioned the column tomorrow. It seems bizarre that on bookmaker websites... You have the one same login to use if you want to bet on horse racing and if you want to bet on, on machines and slots. Why aren't there two? Di- why, why doesn't the bookmaker have two different websites, those two very, very different services? I, I might well have a bet on a race at Leopardstown today. I wouldn't conceive of having a bet on a virtual game. They're two very different products. They should be divided.
0: Let's talk about Milton Bradley, whose long and illustrious career came to an end this week. But on a, a slightly sad note, I thought, Lee...
1: Yeah, we use the word despondent, I think, in, in the headline or the intro of the story about Milton's retirement. Um, and he was despondent basically because he says he hasn't got anywhere to run his horses anymore. Milton is a trainer who's sent out over a 1,000 winners, and there have been some very good horses and some very good winners mm. over that time, not least with dear old the tattling, that really good sprintry train. But a lot of Milton's horses run towards the bottom tier, of the sport, the foundations of the pyramid, if you like, from which the sport structure is built. And Milton's argument is that if you have a horse like that now, if you train a horse like that now, if you own a horse like that now, there are increasingly fewer opportunities uh, in which to run those horses. Um, And I think that will become an ever bigger debate within the sport. There are those who, for perfectly understandable reasons, um, say that we have to concentrate on excellence and that we should almost be removing the bottom tier gradually so that your, your base level becomes higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's no good if you have those base level horses. And it also raises welfare questions of what happens if you're suddenly saying that a whole group of horses isn't fit to race um, on our race courses. Though I think Milton, what Milton does done, he's... he's, he's again shone a spotlight on a a very valid debate in the sport that's important but it's also important that we say congratulations to Morton Bradley, a man of 86 years of of age who's given a tremendous amount to the sport, has brought an awful lot of pleasure to so many people and has had an incredibly successful career too
0: He has and he started off training mainly winners over jumps and had some notable winners over jumps as well and, and reinvented himself as a trainer of high-class sprinters. He was a very good move-up trainer in his time as well and the tattling, the best of those horses. We wish Milton well and, of course, his family too. Let's talk about Sedgefield. It's the latest round of abandonment, Roulette <sighs> Yeah, when to
1: abandon, when not to abandon. So Sedgefield became the latest uh, race course to stage a, a winter jumps meeting um, or to not stage a winter jumps meeting um, at the last minute. I think there were four inspections that took place before Sedgefield was eventually abandoned on Monday at the point when the first race was due to take place. This has happened before in in recent weeks. There was an occasion at Fosslas when eventually the meeting was abandoned very close to the point at which the first race was due to take place. On the other hand, um, you have had a meeting at Plumpton where again, there were many inspections through the morning and eventually racing did take place. There seems to be a division of opinion among um, professionals, particularly among jockeys, about whether this is a good thing or not. Um, The brothers James and Sean Bowen, as others have been, were critical of the decision at Sedgefield on Monday and before that at at Fosslass, arguing that the meeting was never going to take place. Other jockeys, Brian Hughes, the champion jockey, um, very much defended the, the, the way that Sedgefield and the stewards there and the racecourse management managed the situation on Monday and argued that you have to give a meeting every chance to take place. Um, and this will happen again. I don't envisage a situation whereby racecourses are told they have to decide three hours before the first race if racing can or cannot take place. And I have huge sympathy for the racecourses because if you are in a situation where basically you're trying to decide will the racecourse defrost in time for the first race, you are dependent on the weather. And of course, what you wouldn't want to see happen is a race meeting abandoned at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, because at that point, the race course is unraceable, everyone to drive home, and then at one o'clock, the clerk of the course to say if he was contacted, well, is the track raceable now? Well, yes, it is, but we had to call it off. I completely understand why those people who get to a race course have Driven hours to get there mm. are frustrated if racing doesn't take place. But racing takes place out in the open air. These meetings take place on grass, which gets frosty, which gets wet. You have to give nature the time to work, and therefore I, I, would, con- I would agree with those who are giving meetings every chance.
0: Let's talk about amateur riders at the moment. They are precluded from riding in races In the UK, uh, under the elite sport regulation, or the interpretation of the elite sport regulation by the British Horse Racing Authority, will they get their licenses back in time for Cheltenham? Lee, well, not their licenses back, but will they be allowed to ride in time for Cheltenham? And should they be allowed to ride, do you think?
1: Well, in terms of the first question, Nick, will they get their licenses back? I think, as with so many questions relating to this year's Cheltenham Festival, who knows? Mm. We don't know. We don't know how many people will be at the Cheltenham Festival. We don't know whether any owners be at the Cheltenham Festival. We don't know whether any mem- and members, let alone racegoers, will be at the Cheltenham Festival. We don't know. And we don't know um, who will be allowed to ride the horses assuming the meeting takes place, which it looks like doing. At the moment, the BHA's position is that amateur riders aren't allowed to take part in our races. And there is, there is a logic. To that in the sense that horse racing has been allowed to return because it is an elite sport. Yes. By the very definition of the word amateur, amateurs don't fit into that elite sport concept in the way um, that some would like them to. I can see both points of view. Marcus Armitage wrote a strong piece in The in the Telegraph. Marcus obviously was a tremendously successful amateur jockey, won the, won the Grand National on Mr Frisk and he feels real sympathy. There's amateurs who can't ride. And Willie Mullins made the point in the Racing Post this week that you have an instance of someone like his son, Patrick, who is every bit as good as many professional jockeys and people like Jamie Codd, who at the minute wouldn't be allowed to ride in the the Fox Hunters, the Kim Muir, the National Hunt Chase, or the professional races to which they're eligible. And I I, I sympathise with that. However, you can't have your cake and eat it. And if racing has returned because it is deemed to be an elite sport, you have to draw a line somewhere. And it may well be that for this year, that line means that amateur jockeys, because they're amateur and because they're not supposed to be paid, aren't allowed to take part.
0: Yeah, the the point, I suppose, is that the BHA moved the line, didn't they? Because there was a period when we were returning under an elite sport sanction when amateur riders were still allowed to ride. And that happened right up until... Yeah, Christmas time.
1: that was the case. And when
0: the next lockdown came in, the BHA then felt uncomfortable with that. So they moved. They moved to to to. to you they,
1: know, did. Fit the, they fit did. the national mood. Yeah, um, and it has. To, whilst that is frustrating, fitting the national mood and presumably having regular dialogue with government is going to be an inevitable part of this. You know, we all saw how how much the Cheltenham Festival taking place last year went against the national mood yeah. Now, Cheltenham did nothing wrong there, the Jockey Club did nothing wrong there they were advised by government but it didn't go down well and therefore I do understand why the, the sport is perhaps taking a more prudent approach than some would like
0: Let's talk about the £40 million loans that the sport was was granted by, by the government. Now what's the latest on this, Lee?
1: The latest is that we could be into the next pandemic before it's decided what happens <laughs> with this £40 million. Pounds. I mean, I, I remember writing pieces before Christmas when we, were, we weren't quite sure whether it would be by Christmas, wh- whether we knew whether um, how this money was going to be spelt. I was sat in this chair when the former chief executive of the BHA, Nick Ross, was interviewed by you speaking about this money, and at that point it wasn't quite clear when we'd know what was going to happen with it. Now... I don't think this is an instance whereby necessarily racing has done anything wrong at all. It would seem that listening to David Armstrong, the chief of, of the Racecourse Association, it's simply been that, as with so many matters um, of government management in this, in this crisis, it's taking a lot longer to get to a decision than you would have anticipated. Um, it seems that at the moment only rugby um, has actually had money allocated um, from its pot within the within the the $300 that was um, allocated to Sport. Um, It seems as though the RCA is continuing to have negotiations with the DCMS and with Sport England who are having to distribute the money. And there doesn't appear to be a huge urgency in racing's position. I think the the argument has been made that racecourses are wary of taking on £40 million of of loans because they would have to pay them back. and I think there's also a feeling that it's not really in the winter that racecourses are desperate for the money. It will be when we reach that summer period when uh, attendances and hospitality would be much more a factor in racecourse incomes. So we still don't know how that money is going to be spent. We still don't know where that money will go. And we still don't know if all that money will be drawn upon.
0: So you ask me, you know, what's the latest? The latest is, <laughs> we don't know. We are none the wiser. We will be wiser In 10 days time, uh, which horse will carry which weight in this year's Randolph's Health Grand National? Still worth three quarters of a million pounds, of course, and we'll be talking to Michael O'Leary very shortly. I'm sure he'll have a view. Um, Grand National entries over 100, 106?
1: good number, good number. Um, The great sadness for racing of last year, one of the greatest sadnesses, we, we, we didn't have... The Grand National. It is it is our, our showcase race. It is our calling card. The virtual Grand National was, by a country mile, the most host, watched horse race in Britain last year. Potter's Corner was the most high-profile winner in Britain last year. So we're we, we desperate to have a Grand National this year. The entries uh, were very interesting. Um, numbers were good. Some good high-profile names in there. I was disappointed not to see Native River. Uh, who we spoke about earlier on, but the owners, Garth and Ian Broomer, have stated regularly in the past that they're not big fans of the race and they wouldn't want to run the horse in there. But We, we have got like, Bristol Demay, who will Bristol run, and I think
0: he'll miss the Gold Cup to go there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the absolute blessing of Bristol De May not winning the Cotswold chase was that Connections weren't tempted to go for the Cheltenham Gold Cup because you sense if he'd won yesterday, it would have been maybe half of them not to go to Cheltenham. But I remember having a debate with them something last year before, uh, the National, actually, the, the the weights launch event obviously won't take place in the same way this year. That um, it was a case if it was Gold Cup or National, it couldn't be both. He deserves to have a crack at the, the Grand National. Um, Michael Leary um, won't have many more cracks at the Grand National, but might have the horse that makes Grand National history this year. Numerically very strong. Paul Nichols, numerically not very strong, only two entries. Really? Yeah, in the race. Nicky Henderson, six entries. Nicky often makes the point that he's very good at the Topham going one circuit of the Grand National course, but not two. Six chances this year. Probably won't see Santini in there, who is entered, but beware the Bernoche Corral. Give him decent prospects. We all love the Grand National. It'll be great when the weights come out, and there's a good chance that there could be a few debates from someone you'll be interviewing not that long off now uh, about the
0: weights. I would think you might be right. Yeah, We lost two men this week who were passionate about horse racing and had a huge influence upon it. Uh, Lord Vesty, Sam Vesty and Pat Buckley. I think they both deserve a significant tribute, uh, Lee. We'll talk about Pat Buckley first, who won a Grand National of course, yeah, and then went on to be a, a very notable administrator of horse racing in the in the Middle East. A very popular figure.
1: And that word there, Nick, popular, I think is key because with both these individuals, and we'll start with Pat. The the levels of warmth that were evident in the tributes paid by um, by people following the, their deaths w- was notable. Um, you would expect people who um, rode against Pat and, and knew Pat from his jumpings days. He won the Grand National in 1963 mm. on, on Ayala beating the late John Oaksey on on Carrick Beck. Um, they obviously said wonderful things about him. But everyone that was connected to Pat's time after that in, in, the, in the Middle East as a major innovator and, um, and a, a major part in the Middle East becoming a huge racing force. They all spoke tremendously warmly about him as well. So a very good man, as was Lord Vesty, who, who we lost the same day. Um, and again, I thought Alistair Dan wrote a beautiful piece about him in, in the racing post, and echoing... The, 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 the theme of people saying that here was a guy, a, a man, Lord Vesty, but he, he behaved anything other than a lord. In a sense he, he was a, a, a man of the people. Tremendous work at, at Cheltenham. Obviously, success as an owner and a owner and a breeder, but tremendous success at Cheltenham. His double act with Edward Gillespie, as his, he's a great impresario, as his, his chief executive. I think that their role in, in building the festival, in protecting Cheltenham, in nurturing Cheltenham, W- was vital, and I thought what was interesting in, in particular in Edward's quotes afterwards, the way he spoke about when the four-day festival came in, and that neither he nor Lord Vestey clearly were huge fans of the idea of a four-day festival. It was it seems like it was thrust on them by by the Jockey Club, but they managed that as well as it could possibly have been managed. So, given how important Cheltenham is to this sport and to all of us who who love this sport, I think we all owe. Owe oh Lord Vesti a debt of gratitude.
0: Two great men of the turf, large lives, even more significant legacies. Lord Vesty and Pat Buckley, both of whom sadly died this week.
1: Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Basti Cruel Dubai.